Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi there, this is Dr. Leslie Deacon and welcome to our new podcast recording. Uh, here today, as as usual, with Dr. Sarah Lombe. Welcome, Hello. Sarah. Hi, Leslie. And today, our guest is Dr. Rick Bowler, who's here to talk to us about his CAS article, which is entitled Whiteness, Britishness and the Racist Reality of Brexit. Welcome, Rick. Oh. Welcome, Rick. <laughs> thanks, uh, Leslie. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. My name's um, uh, Rick Bowler. Uh, I got my doctorate in 2015 uh, and my interests really have been uh, driven, I think, by these issues of oppression and disadvantage and fortune and privilege, somewhere in in there. Um, So my my focus, most of my focus has been around the issue of racism, anti-racism, I'm really a bit of a probably awkward person who continually talks about anti-racist practice but I'm or praxis really um, you know how we think about it as well as practice it uh, and it's driven me into a, a lot of areas so I'm, I'm, I'm also extremely concerned actually about the place of young people in our society partly because I was brought up to believe and I fundamentally believe it that young people are our future that as a society we should believe in young people um, and we should look after them. And if you don't look after your future, then um, then we've somehow misunderstood what the best cultures, the best human cultures in the world have ever taught us. And uh, And I think that is the worst kind of arrogance when we're currently in a society which has no idea how to look after its young people um, children and young people. It's really lovely to have you here because, um, you know, I think it's really, it's been an absolute joy to reread your paper because obviously I haven't read it for a little while, mm. read them when they came out and then have reread. So it's been really, really great rereading it, have a really good think about things that are just still as equally important as when you re- when you wrote this. There's nothing, nothing's really changed, unfortunately in terms of society we're still in the same place so it's been a really good point to revisit so do you want to just tell us a little bit about you know the article and and how you came to write it because obviously it's related to a paper that professor pete rushton had produced so obviously unfortunately we don't have pete here anymore to be able to talk to us about that but if you could contextualize Hmm. how this came about that'd be really helpful um yeah, thank you for those kind words too. I, I actually also reread it and um, and also reread uh, Peter's paper, and um, of course uh, took me back both to how brilliant and wonderful Peter Rushton was, and uh, and um, and how supportive he he had been as a colleague for all yeah. those years and um, the legacy he left. So Peter wrote the paper. He wrote the first paper and. Um, the paper was, if I get this right, was titled "Brexit Vote in Sunderland," um, and uh, and I reviewed it. That was really how I got into oh, okay. writing my paper. So part of the sort of um, way forward was working with Pete about his views on Brexit, and um, and I guess my views on Brexit. And uh, of course, Pete was a brilliant historical sociologist yeah. and um, took a very particular view um, around uh, class and particularly I think central to his paper as I, I remember it was that um, Sunderland had been targeted and I can only think of that as the right word by the establishment uh, to uh, be called a Brexit city yeah. uh, with a kind of under lying deficiency discourse that somehow the aberrant uh, people of Sunderland had voted um, um, in a way which marked them out as extraordinary and different when in fact Pete's paper eloquently argues that uh, the 
title really might have better been uh, Sunderland of Pretty Ordinary Place, uh, that in fact there was nothing particularly aberrant about Sunderland uh, or anywhere else, but there was something very particular about the Brexit referendum uh, yeah. and its outcome. Yeah, because I, I reread um, obviously Pete's paper as well, and it was I was reflecting on that because um, I remember after the vote had happened, I was actually at the, the graduation ball, um, and I remember talking to some of our students who had actually they had voted to leave, and I was talking mm-hmm. to them, and I and I had to kind of I sort of was a I was a bit surprised at the time, and I remember saying to them, okay, tell me why, tell me why what was going on in your head as to why you felt this was the the right decision and that you know I found that really interesting that I think that you know when you actually look into the reasoning behind it it's not always what you think it is you know there's these perceptions of why people voted and actually there's an to me there's an awful lot of people saying I'm not being listened to I'm not being heard I need to be heard you do, you're not you, you know feeling that the establishment doesn't care yeah. at all Leslie, I think that's 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 really that is important. Actually, there's some really important contextual frames. I think to just set down. Otherwise, um, partly if we're going to talk about issues of race and yeah. racism and whiteness, otherwise I think people will misunderstand what those terms might mean. I think that's yeah. uh, both in Pete's paper and I think in, in mine, I tried to talk about some of the contexts of preca- precarity mm-hmm. and. Uh, the precariousness of uh, much of the working class. In in fact, I would always, when I think about the working class, think about white and black working class. So I would think about the combination of of how the intersect between race and class is is absolutely critical um, and and always has been. But but for many people, their lives are um, are difficult, and and I think. The, the idea that, that the trail of Brexit leaves today, I can see that so I can use, um, you know, a couple of my younger daughters' experiences where uh, they've uh, had to work as many, many, many young people have to in zero-hour contract mm. employment on minimum wage yeah. for 16-year-olds. That's £4 something. Um, and... Uh, um, rising to something like £8 if you're in your 20s and £8 something and you think this is absolutely disgusting these these young people have very little opportunity and uh, many of them are graduates of universities they, they yeah. have very little opportunity to have a foothold in the society uh, and of course for the, for older members of, of society um, we've seen the expansion of, of, of vans and the delivery drivers yes. and a whole range of those kind yeah. of areas of work uh, mm. if people are lucky enough to be in work um, which are um, tell us something about the place that we live um, yeah yeah, definitely. Because yeah. you, you touched on some of your sort of concepts there already. Because it's quite, uh, quite. Um, I think it'd be helpful, maybe for our, for our listeners to sort of hear. You know, when you use these terms like whiteness, what what is it that you mean by that? So we can then kind of then think about what social workers need to be thinking about when it comes to those sort of, that sort of terminology and what it means. Okay, uh, that you know, I, I, I like that, Leslie. What, <laughs> what I'm I'm going to do before I say something about it, because yeah. w- well, first and foremost, if I say that uh, when I'm talking about whiteness from a particular critical race perspective, I'm really talking about uh, a system, an organised system that uh, was underpinned really by uh, supremacist ideological views racial logics, as we might call them, uh, which uh, posit a particular um, view of humans and and how humans um, are organised in some kind of stratified system uh, of classification. And so my starting point is really to say that the reason I wanted to write that paper and the reason why wanted to do research or do any kind of research and writing and teaching is because I think the first point is that we're human and much of the processes that we've just talked about in terms of precariousness and that's an organised social system it isn't an accident and it is not natural uh, that um, many many people are on very low wages and uh, live uh, very poor existences and have to use food banks that's a dehumanising system Mm -hmm. and so 
the starting point is to recognise what is humanising and what is dehumanising about the contacts and the places we work and therefore the people we work with, we begin to see um, something else and we can yeah. then begin to talk about racism yeah. and, and, um, or other forms of, of, of social inequality. Yeah, that's that's right. Because that's what when I was reading your paper, I was looking at it and I was thinking, yeah, this is this is the particular issue of of race. Mm-hmm. You can almost say, well, we can look at disability as one of those. We can look at gender as one of those. There's, you know, it's the same sort of thing in a system that that doesn't seem to uh, says it's fair, but actually acts unfairly. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree with that entirely, Leslie. I think, you know, one of the ways and some of the interesting other research that's been done in this area around, say, landscapes of hate, um, uh, Brexit was interesting for this. I mean, interesting, uh, when I use the word interesting, I I, I don't mean um, that I like it, but it was interesting. And uh, that one of the things uh, about the referendum itself was the increase. There was a, a significant increase in hate crime. Yeah. yeah, and that hate crime didn't just affect um, people who were not white, uh, in the sense of it didn't just affect people who might be labelled as migrants or immigrants or mm-hmm. asylum seekers or Muslims uh, or um, from black and, and minority ethnic communities, but it also affected uh, people who were gay, LGBT people. And you mm-hmm. thought, well, how on earth does this this how does this work? And then it also, of course, we know the significant rise in in things like domestic and interpersonal violence. And you think, well, how is this working? How, how, or hate crime against uh, uh, people, uh, uh, dis- 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 disabled people? And you think, what are the connecting points here? Um, and and so some of the, the the more recent work by other academics around this, I think, is very, very interesting yeah. um, because it doesn't actually make sense, but it tells us something about when we have policies of social division. Yeah. That, uh, that play off people against each other. And we have uh, populist uh, ideas that uh, produce culture wars where uh, it is all right to say whatever you want to say. It is okay to believe whatever you want to believe, as if somehow these are, again, natural processes and not processes mm. of discursive social construction. Then I think we're in dangerous territory. So if you, if you think about then, you know, in terms of in, if we look now particularly at race and think about race in relation to, to social work practice. Mm. So um, what do you think are the sort of key issues there for, for social workers? Okay. Okay, for I mean, of course, you know, I'm a community yes. youth work. Uh, um, <laughs> we will person. make that clear in the introduction. <laughs> um, no, but but of interest to me is that, of course, when I started out in the, this world, of course, social work and community work um, were sisters. Really, they, yeah. they they one came out of the other, yeah. and uh, one influenced the other, and that's been my my own. Um, experience too that social work and community and youth work are absolutely key parts of a wider educational mm-hmm. um, and interventionist system for um, for really dealing with uh, the fallout of what I would call socially unjust processes yeah. so um, so I'm trying to uh, so my thoughts about race here are really the, to do with this that um, race isn't something that one can easily just superimpose mm. as as an idea it, it, it was a social system um, racism was a social system that developed to justify um, some of the um, greatest brutalities uh, the, the world has, has known in terms of transatlantic slavery into empire uh, but for Britain its, its empire stretched uh, everywhere it's almost impossible to think of somewhere that Britain's footprint hasn't been and sometimes that footprint was good and sometimes mm-hmm. that footprint was not good at all uh, in fact was um, extremely bad and uh, and then we had colonialism and this idea of colonization, not only just of, of, of land, but of, of, of resources mm-hmm. and of people uh, left this legacy of mm-hmm. how we as human beings are organized into these groups, as I said earlier. Yeah. And that really is, is, I guess, the central argument I'm making in the paper that 
the idea of who to be who can be known as a british citizen or as a british as belonging to britain as being um english british as an english british national uh really was part of the the discourse that was used um in the brexit referendum to scare people into and to other people and to separate people as if we were not actually all rather interesting human beings with our different foibles mm. core to that i think was this idea of um the immigrant so i just want to try and see mm. about something about words power and meaning yeah. and this is really important for social work um in its in its entirety because how we describe people uh may not actually be as uh, very clear in relation to when we asked when we're asked to think well what do we mean by that so when we describe people as immigrants what we're really doing is we're um avoiding a description of who are not immigrants mm-hmm. well so mm-hmm. let, me give, let me try and give an example uh, when i was doing my doctoral studies i was really fascinated by the fact that there are far more expats uh, a word that's <laughs> used <commas>. to describe <laughs> yeah. uh everybody from england britain who goes and lives somewhere else yeah. uh they're expats they're, they're never immigrants they mm, uh mm. i don't think it's possible we're, we're brit we're, we're the british immigrants in hong kong uh or the or were the expats there were expats they're expats everywhere mm. um and uh so the idea of immigrants is clearly a way of demarking one group of people from another and this idea of always talking about the other mm-hmm. and the other is always othered in this in this uh kind of process is really at the root of of my own conceptualization of thinking about how as a social worker or a community <laughs> youth worker or a teacher or a nurse yeah. or a doctor or any other kind of professional how do we work with people if mm-hmm. we start from a position where we start to see them as um a label yeah uh, yeah and a label without particularly deep thought and meaning That's all I think that's always an issue that we encounter a lot. I think I remember Sarah when you were doing your um one of your cast seminars and you were talking about words like was it vulnerable? Yeah, you know? I was unpicking that yeah. in relation to adult safeguarding. Yeah. And I think what you've just said is is so important um Rick and I think it kind of sparks me one of the things I wanted to ask you about your paper um in regards to sort of power dynamics within those relationships because you're talking about starting with that position of someone as an other with a label in mind rather than looking at them as a person and as a human and i think we do that in these professions because we categorize professional not professional social worker service user there's power inherent in that already without then adding on other labels that we might give to someone like vulnerable yeah. or whatever else and i'm just wondering if you yeah. could like share your thoughts about those sorts of um aspects and the power dynamics inherent in those roles and the labels that we ascribe. Yeah, no, that's great, Sarah. I think that's it seems to me that that's absolutely essential for any um any any critical professional mm-hmm. must start from the basis of what um what is the purpose of me utilizing this language yeah. uh in terms of what kind of relationship uh do i need to have with the person that i'm working with mm-hmm. and 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 here i'm not wanting to be um over liberal if if that's the right word to use to to suggest that we don't have to have a position or a line mm-hmm. we must have a position we must be clear about what that position is but we must actually make that transparent and i think part of the issue for me is that so much of this um use of labels and use of uh um organizing principles uh Uh, are hidden mm-hmm. they so they're not transparent either yeah. in, in in terms of the vulnerable if using utilizing that uh, construct uh either to the person who's labeled it uh uh or or we think is yeah. uh, or, uh and to us and i think that's the bit uh, in the in the middle that i really would like to bring out and mm-hmm. make public so i think some of the things that no many of the things that happen on a day-to-day basis uh in this country and I'm 
really thinking here about political processes, but I'm also thinking about um, interventionist processes, mm. mm-hmm. need to be made transparent. And that's difficult for professionals, I think. It's difficult for all of us. But we need to have those difficult complicated and discomforting conversations in order to get a better understanding of what it is, what our roles are, what our responsibilities Mm -hmm. are and and what our purpose is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, there was a couple of things I was thinking from what you were saying, Rick. One of them was... um, about the fact that we don't we don't have the conversations um there's a very well sorry there's a there's a very romantic view i believe of britain's colonial past that is taken which isn't actually filled with the harsh realities of what it actually meant and what it looked like to people experiencing it and i i was trying to think back myself about my own education and how much of that was really made aware to me? Mm-hmm. And I honestly can't. It's a huge gap, isn't it's it? It's massive, mm-hmm. isn't it? And then when I was thinking about social work education, I couldn't think of any at all on that. And that really concerned me because I think that otherwise, I think your point of the cri- critical practitioner, to me, that's really important. That's what we're really talking about. If we've got critical practitioners, then it's almost like you're in slightly safe hands there with somebody who will challenge and question. Um, And it it sort of then, what I was thinking about was, I think I I sort of, you and I have known each other for quite a few years. One one of the things I I brought into social work education, particularly that I've found interesting, is moral philosophy. Mm. And, And the thing with moral philosophy is it is about you need to see the person before you see the label, the process, and everything else. And that was so challenging for, for social work students because they spend, <clears throat> by the time, it's almost like by the time they're at a point to be open to that level of criticality, they've had law and policy through their heads <laughs> <laughs> for sometimes for two years or a year about the importance of that and this is how we do things. And then suddenly I was saying, okay, let's just put that out the door. It's not in the room. It's not here. We're not going to discuss that. Forget it. Now let's talk about the person, the human being, because that's the only thing that we share in in its entirety, I think, is humanity. We're all human beings. At least I hope so. We might find some <laughs> philosophical, you know, question later on that questions that. But what do you? What are your thoughts about that kind of thing in in things like social work education and general? Okay. No, no. I think. Well, I think if I if I sort of try and come back to the paper and think yeah. think about how we mm-hmm. go with that in terms of social work education, because uh, I think it's really important for so, social workers, students, and practitioners mm-hmm. um, to really understand. Um, things that that many people don't like actually it's not not that i i I want them to forcibly um, do things they don't like but i i I often and i think we we live in this society at the moment where the education system i think is uh, devoid really for many people of uh, an understanding of politics and policy of how the social processes in this country uh, are organized so um so it it it, it's um so it took a footballer like Marcus Rashford, just to mm. use him as an example, uh, to highlight to the country uh, that uh, children are not fed on a regular basis. Mm. Large numbers of children actually have to live um, very, very precarious lives. That's not good for children. I mean, we know that. We just know that. All public health people know that. Yeah. In fact, very, uh, all professionals, good professionals know that. Mm-hmm. The government knows this. The government has known this for for years. Mm-hmm. It's not a it's not a shock to them. Although they often appear to think, "Oh my goodness me, I didn't know that." Well, I guess I would argue that if you draw your politicians from a very narrow band, mm. and so one of the arguments I make in the paper is that much of the Brexit debate, for or against, was led and portrayed by white middle class men. Yeah. There was very few other voices. There were a few women's voices. But there were particular voices, and I'd, and and there were mostly uh, middle class voices. Occasionally, if 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 they needed to utilise a voice from below, they would pick one that um, supported their cause. Uh, but 
But the actual voices of ordinary people were were not heard. The voices of young people were not heard. The voices of all these diverse groups of people were not heard. Um, And and the complex voices of maybe working class people, uh, men and women, were not really, really heard uh, in terms of what did this this, uh, major policy change mean for them in terms of things like economy, in terms of things like uh, day-to-day living, in terms of things like services, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in terms of things like health, uh, access to health, uh, or in relation to the the burgeoning um, voluntary and community sector uh, filling in the gaps with things like food banks Mm -hmm. um, and community care. Okay, so why why is that? How's that context um, relate relate to those um, specific sorts of questions? Well, I think if we don't get an education about those things, if we don't understand how our local democracy works, how we can ask for things, we can demand things, we can um, we can engage collectively to try and organise to have things, then the things that uh, the, the 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 services to us can disappear and so leading up to Brexit was almost well it was 2016-17 so Mm. we're talking at least six years of austerity Uh, and austerity uh, was sold to the public as a policy to deal with uh, very very wealthy people in 2008 running away with the money I mean the, the, the global financial crisis i mean i'm you know I, this is not my greatest area of strength but you know uh it it, it would be clear if you would have told anybody uh, in the know at that time and today that the global financial crisis was not caused by working class people <laughs> it was not caused by young people it was not mm. caused by any of the diverse groups that we're talking about it was caused by a very small group of highly entitled bankers and others who decided to gamble with with our money with with our the ability of each of all of us to have services mm-hmm. as a consequence of that our politicians and limited from a very limited background decided that they had to impose severe cuts to public services yeah and the public services are ours. They're people's. I mean, I may we can argue about them. We can, you know, we can sometimes say, oh, we think our doctors should be better or our nurses should be better or this, you know, this facility should be more important than that facility. But they're, they're the basis of all other health and social care in this society. And, of course, I mean, we can see the, the problems of social care um, mm. uh, everywhere. Yeah. Okay, so that so so that uh, contextualization mm-hmm. uh, for me began to. I thought, well, all of this is absent from the Brexit debate. Yeah, yeah. this isn't being discussed mm-hmm. at all. That it's as if somehow we haven't had all these cuts. That there is a decimation in local authority mm-hmm. services. So for social workers, the the the, the problems are rising. Uh, the resources are, are lessening. Um, uh, the demand is increasing. The the support is lessening. And for people on the bottom end, in in in, in the most difficult aspects of life, those people living in poverty. Uh, and, and I cannot understand how we've arrived in 2021 and do not understand that poverty is something that we should easily have eradicated. If somebody can have £400 million a year salary plus millions of pounds worth of bonuses, well, they could ca- keep a million pounds and give the rest out and we could start to redistribute some of that mm-hmm. resource to deal with things like poverty. I'm very happy to uh, myself pay more taxes if that was the case. So we we haven't really dealt with any of these substantial um, issues at at all. So then we enter a debate about whether we want to stay or leave Europe. Uh, Now, as we've just said before, one of the dilemmas for us in this country is we have a very poor social education system. I mean, it may be really good in very particular bits. My, My eldest brother's a brilliant 
science teacher. He's a fantastic science teacher. My uh, oldest daughter's a fantastic primary school teacher. I know teachers are brilliant. They <laughs> teach really, really good in the subject areas. But they would both agree, as with, I think, most educators, head teachers uh, and, and, and all the unions and, of, of teachers would agree that social education is absolutely essential. And we don't have it in this country. Mm. So people actually really had 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 a narrative about Europe from both from all the major political parties actually none of them come out of this very well all the major political parties that Europe was somehow a terrible place now I'm the child of an immigrant um, my uh, mother uh, for all her uh, interests and beauty and and care and difficulties brought us up to believe that we were in Europe mm-hmm. we, we we came from India and we are in Europe. We're in Britain. You're in Europe. This mm-hmm. is a part of Europe. Yeah. She had an education that told her that different continents lived in different places in the world mm. and, and Britain was in Europe. So I, I was fascinated myself by this idea that somehow Britain was outside of Europe uh, yeah. Yeah. In, in a debate about whether we should be part of the European Union or not. And uh, and probably the most telling example of this for me was a young man in Wales was interviewed. He'd come out of a sports centre. Uh, he was a young working class uh, lad. He'd come out of a sports centre and he was interviewed. I think it was on one of the major TV channels. And behind him was a big sign that said, uh, uh, paid for by the European Social Fund. And the new sports centre, the new um, community resources and facilities and all the road systems leading to them were all part of this thing that we call Europe were, were part of our involvement and engagement with the European Social um, Fund and, and we got that because we were members of, of this um, this club and he was interviewed and uh, and the irony was that he was standing of course with his back to this uh, this big notice and, and he actually said to the interviewer well what's Europe ever done for us right? and it was like a Monty Python sort <laughs> yeah. of moment, it was one of those moments yeah, where yeah. you think okay we've got a mismatch here between what people understand uh, and what the politicians are trying to portray on yeah. either side of this debate uh, and so that that was my starting point to think for, about okay I need yeah. to say something about this um, yeah uh, this paper yeah and you said a lot of very eloquent and really important things in the paper it's um it was enjoyable to read definitely and some really interesting points that you made about the role of educators I think you've touched on mm-hmm. sort of teachers there but more widely in the paper you seem to be um, particularly in the conclusion suggesting or saying very clearly that educators have a role to critically expose um, Mm. you know these oppressive systems and the the things they come across in their practice but who would you Mm. classify as being an educator I think I mean obviously there's the obvious ones teachers are educators all of us in this room are educators Mm. but does that role apply more widely than that would you see other professions like social workers having that kind of role as well yeah, no, I would definitely see that, Sarah. I think social workers, uh, social workers have a duty as community and youth workers do. Actually, we're two of the, the the professions that still retain an ethical commitment to anti-oppressive practice, yeah. anti-discriminatory practice, and this is really important because these are part of our standards. And um, but we've lost a little bit on the journey uh, of what that means. We've come yeah. to sort of almost think of them in. Um, light ways uh, yes. that we're, we we need to be mm-hmm. polite to people um, and maybe um, uh, but not think about the the the, the social conditions yeah. that we're being asked to go into or that mm-hmm. the people we work with are living in and to think about them in a much more wider and deeper and more expansive way. Yeah. And I think so I think I would say that we you know social work educators but also our social work institutions have been through an awful lot of changes over mm-hmm. a very short period of time yeah. lots and lots of interference um by politicians this is you know it's it's a fascinating way that our democracy operates it's a very dysfunctional way of operating um and it's a very one directional way of operating um but it, it so it means that those social work often the social work institutions that are supposedly uh, 
looking at standards are, in my view, um, neglectful of uh, these underlying uh, social problems so that uh, they, they expect um, professionals to solve problems or to work with people as if they were completely and utterly individual. Mm-hmm. And I think this process of individualization has become just, just routine now. It's yeah. almost as if that is how the world is. Well, partly I'm fortunate because I'm older, it's that I was brought up in a social welfare system. Partly I think I, I, I was uh, fortunate because I had um, a parent who, uh, although Indi- educated in India, was, was very knowledgeable and so would insist on us thinking about other people all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there were some religious duties in there. Uh, so, you know, our daily job was to think about helping other people and to get out and look at other people. But in a, as a consequence of doing that, you end up engaging in discussions with other people and you begin to find out richness, the richness yeah. and diversity of life. Yeah. Uh, and how people have got great resilience and fortitude to overcome things. And those things, I think, get missed for social yeah. workers if we don't um, critically problematise yeah. the places uh, that we work and the people we work with. So when you were talking just then, Rick, it was it was making me think about um, the sort of the missing social education that seems to be throughout the whole system that that we're not getting that which is like almost like the critical thinking element of looking at things and actually questioning rather than just accepting and it that was making me think about um uh, when I became a, a an educator in in social work that um one of the ways in which social workers can achieve that is by actually taking a radical social work perspective but I remember that when it was sort of started as colleagues who had been there during that movement which was in the sort of 70s um, students saying oh well why is it relevant why do I need to be looking at something that was going on in the 1970s mm-hmm. and what I've, I've really tried to champion is to actually try and get um students to really acknowledge that it is relevant now as it's ever been in fact even more so and really what this is is about the fact that when you're a practitioner what you don't want to be is an agent of the state that is actually discriminating against individuals by implementing policies and and practice that actually cause further discrimination mm-hmm. and some of the things that I I've been trying to get them to think about and it's going to sound quite <laughs> sort of silly in some respects but I actually get them to think about a toilet roll and how actually if you think about how you buy toilet roll it's like the system is set up so that the people with the most money can get the best value out of a sheet of toilet paper because it's cheaper to buy bulk and you can only do that if you've got surplus cash and the majority of the people that we're working with in social services do not have surplus cash so even just a simple matter like that to try and get them to sort of stop and think and they have found that quite surprising Mm -hmm. because nobody thinks about these things it's like those little kind of pointers isn't it to try and almost like poke a hole in all of that that you've just set out and say hang on a minute let's look at what that really means let's look at what that really means Mm -hmm. so so leading on from that I just wondered um, how you f- how you think do we have space because that was one of the aspects do we really have space for these conversations in other podcasts we've talked about in order to think you need space and that's not just physical space mental space time just wondering what you thought about that no, Leslie, that's really fantastic. I think that's um, I think that gets to the knob really of of, of a problem in in community and youth work. One of the things I think that I've, I've written about a bit actually is safe spaces. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important for youth workers working with young people to uh, develop safe spaces so that young people can discuss their own concerns. What are the concerns that they have about the lives that they lead? whether they're young women or, or young men or, or, or whatever their, their particular concerns are. Mm-hmm. One of the other problems that we have in this uh, ultra-efficient system 
And I say that with a great deal of irony because it's the most inefficient system. If one starts from the point of social justice and social change, uh, is that uh, we don't have any time. Yeah. So the thing that I feel, and maybe I shouldn't say it this way, but this is how I feel about it, is that uh, over my years uh, as a professional, the things that have been stolen from me are time and space. Mm-hmm. And, of course, these are not concepts that necessarily are used in our professional world. There yeah. may be much more in uh, physics or um, in other worlds where people might talk about time and space uh, mm-hmm. in terms of um, uh uh, the way the, the the way that the way that everything works, the, yeah. everything or is organised this way. Maybe see this in some more critical geographical thinking too. So time and space are absolutely key. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have any time to talk about these things, yeah. and we're given no space to do it, then they're never going to get talked about. No. And so I'm kind of take it back a little bit to mm-hmm. uh, some of the arguments I think I was trying to make in, in the, the paper about the Brexit and the uh, referendum and the outcome of it and the way it was conducted is that again that was that was a rushed mm. process actually so people themselves had never really had very many spaces or opportunities or time to discuss some of the complexities of what racial identities might mean what Mm -hmm. does it mean to be white or not white what does it mean to be in Sunderland or Newcastle or Hartlepool what does it mean Mm -hmm. to be English or British what does it mean to be Scottish or Irish what does it mean how do we begin to have these sorts of discussions about who we are in the world and and as a as an absence of having any of those discussions, and we used to have them. There was a period yeah. in social work and in other other places. So I do go back to come forward, yeah. uh, and I'll, I'll do that in a, a little bit in a minute. But in order to have those conversations, one needs uh, safe spaces because they can be difficult conversations, yeah. and we need time. Uh, and and the time is absolutely crucial to be able to capture each of our humanities Mm -hmm. in the process of understanding where we're coming from in those debates. Yeah, because the issue with that, um, you know, I mean, that's why we're doing these podcasts to some extent, because we want to get this, this knowledge out to current practitioners who don't have time or the sort of access levels necessarily to to access a lot of this research and knowledge that we're talking about. So we're sort of thinking, sort of hoping that people are listening and they're in their cars and they're going between things and they're having a little bit of space because it, it's gone. But when you're saying then, we, we, that's changed. But I think about, you know, we, we hear about some of the sort of larger organisations, um, about the offices that they have that are actually completely set up to give people creative space. And yet we don't have that in, in professional practice environments. It's like it's seen as not a creative process. And yet having space to think is, is a creative process, isn't it? And we need that in order to actually look at is this the right thing to do? Should I be doing this? What's going on here? What do I understand? Mm-hmm. You know, so going back to that idea of each case almost being an individual, actually, yeah, okay, each yeah. case is, but it's not. So think about how does it connect up with all of those other things, yeah. you know? I think um, I think I completely agree with that, and I, I just think what you were saying then about that time um, to understand the time and space to think and to talk and to discuss... Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is so important, but it goes beyond that because you were saying before about this idea of everyone as an individual, but actually that ignores the fact that we are embedded within these oppressive structures. We yeah. have a government that denies that institutional racism exists. And you're talking then about, well, how can we have these conversations about racial identity and what that means to each of us without that time and space? So I think, you know, it it is part of that yeah. examining your own individual practice, but also... If you only do that and you don't have that time and space to understand it on a broader, wider level, then social workers are never going to have a role in actually challenging those unhelpful processes and policies that they're embedding and using in their practice. And they are at the forefront of actually understanding because they see the impact of them on the individuals. So it's about that understanding it to examine your own individual practice. But I think perhaps that role in challenging 
policy at a wider level as well. I don't even know if there was a question in that. I just jumped in because it was just making (laughs) me think about kind of that overlap. And and I don't know really to what extent um, social work as a profession has that voice in challenging things at a higher level. Although they do seem to be, to me at least, in a really good position to be able to do that because they do, they see what's happening on the front line. But does it come back to that time and space that they don't have it? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, no, I I think what you're saying, Sarah, I agree with that. I mean, of course, I think, I guess the part of what we're trying to do, isn't it, is is try to understand how we've got to this position. How have we got here and how do we get out of it? I Mm -hmm. think that's probably the way I would tend to sort of think about it. Yeah. I think I've always, I think in this sense, I suppose it's about being practical um, with the problems that face us. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. I, I think we've got into this position because uh, there, there's been um, a move to, as I say, partly make things efficient um, and um, partly, as po- apparently, if, if it's efficient, it's effective. Well, of mm-hmm. course, these two things are just completely, com- they're completely contrary. They don't make sense if you just put them together. And if you just keep saying them, as if that's going to make it work, then, um, well, that just makes it even worse. It just compounds the problem. Yeah. So we can see it whether we look at the prison system. It's, it's really become an industrial complex of yeah. warehousing, often uh, young people from care or yeah. uh, young people who've grown up in poverty yeah. uh, um, and uh, young people who, who, who might have um, experienced family breakdowns or young p- people who've, who've experienced domestic violence in their backgrounds, all of those kind of issues don't get looked at, no. even though the researchers are, sh- are sharing this knowledge with us. Uh, and, and our voice isn't actually in the, the social policy process. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. that's the bit that seems to me to be the trick, actually. I think somehow there's been a con and that is that those people who uh, rise up through um, the ranks of, of political leadership um, end up um, uh, running things. And, and, I mean, many of them have never run anything before. No. They, it's not that they've got experience of running things, but they get to these positions. But the whole process has is a top-down, imposed, instructional design really it's yeah. you know yeah. you as social workers must do these things we can, can now can tell you that uh, these are the things to do well i i if, if i could do anything i'd probably say to people think grenfell mm. think grenfell tower if we think of anything we th- must think about issues like grenfell tower as a as one example or food banks Mm. Or, or Marcus Rashford's yeah. idea of children not being fed. Yeah, well, yeah. social workers know this. Community workers know this. Yeah. Yeah. Lots and lots of ordinary parents day to day know this. Ch- primary schools know this really, really well. Primary schools, yeah. so certainly primary schools that are working in areas where these issues are day to day realities um, of life. Mm-hmm. But none of those voices are fed into local, regional and national policy. No. Yeah, um, they're really they're really not. I mean, when I was thinking about being a practitioner, I did see that I did, and I, I remember it. The the only comment I remember I used to say to people was, you know what, you wouldn't really object to people receiving benefits if you if you saw how they did live, because it's not like some wonderful existence with you know bucket loads of cash for nothing. It doesn't look like that at all, you know. And I went round areas that I didn't know until I went round them. Yeah. And then I encountered a young person there who I was saying things to her like, you know, because I, ha- I reflected on my practice afterwards and felt that was that the right thing to say? And I said something to her along the lines of she was missing appointments. And I said, well, just pop to Smith's and get yourself a, a diary. And she looked at me and, and I was like, you know, Smith's. And she went, no, shook her head. And I was like, WH Smith's, you know, the sta- stationery sort of shop. No, because she'd never been. I was talking about the city centre and just made a massive, massive assumption that she would know exactly what I meant. And it was not part of her life. So even just in that sense, you know, I had to step back and go, hang on a minute, Leslie, what on earth are you doing there? And it's, you know, that was years ago and it's still with me as I reflected back on it. But I saw things as a practitioner. I was then also a mum. (laughs) And I didn't have, I want, you know, I felt I want to do something, 
But the reality of me driving past my house at like six o'clock at night to go on a visit, you know, miles away, when I got, by the time I got back, there was nothing left in me, you know, to actually do something. So social work does have people like the Social Work Action Network and there there is ac- activism there but it's like it's not like you were saying Rick it's like there's, people are speaking but it's not being heard and it's not being fed into, into policy and that's the bit that is part of what Sarah and I are trying to sort of achieve with our work is about the fact that we need some we need to get the information out there but we also need to get the information back and work out a way to sort of do this yeah. I, that was more just a, a comment really mm. i wonder because i wonder if it's all right rick to sort of take you back to that idea of, of safe spaces to talk okay. because one of the things again like i was saying when i read your article i reflect on on cases that i've worked at and it, again it's something that has stayed with me for a long time so so the context of that was a working with two children uh, the the oldest child had been born in angola but the youngest child was born here um to all intents and purposes they they identified themselves as as british that's how they talked about themselves they were going through the adoption process and I had a disagreement with their um, court-appointed guardian because the court-appointed guardian said they'd identified an a a adoptive parent for them. That adoptive parent was, from, was Afro-Caribbean with no connection whatsoever to Angola. The guardian's view was the cultural identity of these children was incredibly important and I questioned whether that was based on anything other than their skin colour. And I questioned them on that because I could not see any other reason why that person in particular was being chosen apart from their skin colour. And it didn't and it and it created a very uncomfortable silence in the room. And I wondered since then, I don't think that's changed. Because I've seen that in you know, in classrooms where you actually raise these issues. And I think there's a tendency for people to be quite uncomfortable about talking about it and I just wondered what your thoughts were on that no no I think this is this again is 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 a, a part of a broader problem I think so I'll try and sort of keep it at that level yeah. Leslie rather mm-hmm. than try to yeah. think about the individual cases because uh, so I, I just want to take your, your start with your, your, your element about the past to the to the future mm-hmm. really and think back um, to the time when social work had active Groups actually, there was a lot of active groups uh, that looked at um, uh, things like black being black in care. Uh, mm-hmm. They they uh, were looking at um, anti-racism in social work. They were looking at uh, transracial adoption. Um, there was there was a whole range of these kind of which were not easy debates. I mean, I think that's the other thing that I would say is important for us. We we need to recognise that we might enter a room and and experience a degree of discomfort. Because we might, albeit however clever we think we are or how much we've studied, we may not have studied everything, and certainly I most certainly have never studied everything. I've studied some things and hopefully done quite well with them. But there are lots of areas where I don't know a lot, and it's mm. maybe useful for me to feel a little bit uncomfortable about having to hear new knowledge, new mm. ideas, and new ways of thinking that help me, actually, help me put together... Um, maybe opinions that I've formed which mm-hmm. I'm not sure where they've come from yeah. um, and professionals are no different in my view to ordinary people mm-hmm. I, I, the way that we learn opinions it's just when we're professional we pretend I think a little that we don't have them mm-hmm. um, and so the reason I'm saying that is because mm-hmm. I think this idea of something like say something like um, um, transracial adoption or, or mm-hmm. uh, complex adoption processes yeah. uh, are really about several things. They're about what, who do we think is a family? What, what do we think about um, who's the right kind of family? Yeah. Um, and where are the voices of um, of those people who specifically are the marked other mm-hmm. in this process? Yeah. Where are their voices in this discussion? And one of the difficulties for social work as a profession, I guess it's the same for for other professions, is if we don't have very many like black social workers or we don't yeah. have many social yeah. workers of difference, however one wants to flavour this, then actually what we're what we're in is 
is always a room where um, the knowledge that's been born from one particular frame, and I might call that whiteness in, yeah. in its broader sense, has not really um, been uh, engaged with from another frame. And actually, what what we need to recognise as, as as people, and I kind of can make this link to colonialism and post-colonialism and the realities that we live in yeah. is that if there is a dominant frame then we ought to know it yeah we ought to know it much better and yeah, i think that's probably what, what you're, you're saying there Leslie. Yeah. That, and if there's a dominant frame then it's really important to hear voices that trouble that frame yeah mm-hmm. now it doesn't mean that the end product is going to make is is going to say yes you whatever you say is right because i yeah, think yeah. that's not what i'm asking for but really we need to hear those voices and we need to then experience the healthy discomfort is god i can't think how many times in my life i've been uncomfortable um, <laughs> to to get to a point where we can helpfully think what's the best decision here what's a good decision yeah and yeah. and you should be able to to unpick whatever decision it was regardless of what the issue was yes. it, it, you know we should all be comfortable well or even if we are uncomfortable we should be accepting of of questions and accepting of of that sort of challenge to our reasoning mm-hmm. and need yeah. to be able to do that that don't we to in order to have that i i do feel that the that race as an issue is is something um that has there's there's a, an aspect of it where um, people of you know who are white feel oh I don't want to be appear to be racist so there's this fear that if I say something I mean I, I again thinking of a student that um, uh, a few years ago who was from Zimbabwe he said to me that a, a colleague and I'm not going to say hmm. ever who this colleague was had um, always looked to him when they mentioned something like black in you know in a lecture always look to him and he felt really uncomfortable about it and he said do, do you think they want me to say no I don't think you're racist you know so it, there's this sort of almost like this very sort of like slightly middle classy kind of discomfort around I, I don't want to say I don't want to be seen so so I'll say nothing or I'll or I'll do something that actually is actually a little bit awkward I think that's a beautiful example, actually, Leslie. Thank you. I think that's a really powerful example because it's at a micro level, isn't it? That mm-hmm. much of everything that we do works. Yes. That's really yeah. I mean, for social workers or for anybody else. All of the contextualising is important, but actually, what we do with another human being in the moment really is key. Yeah. And it and it seems to me that that this is one of those areas and um, where if we don't really interrogate um, systems of power and uh, systems of knowledge it's really actually about what kind of knowledge yeah. is knowledge yeah. U- ultimately this this for me is, is where it comes from and, and if we've had a colonial system that went around the world tramping its feet and telling people that the only people who can know stuff are people who yeah. look like me or do mm-hmm. this and then eventually discover that the people that they've been telling you know we are so knowledgeable and you're not have a voice and that voice yeah. comes back and starts to say actually we've got another way of looking at the world thank you very much and you know indigenous yeah. knowledge is now you know um, really, really crucial. There's a lot of writings around indigenous knowledge now, and we're talking. It should have been, you know, well, of course, people were talking about this stuff hundreds of years ago, but nobody listened. But mm-hmm. now it's it's being mm-hmm. formally um, formalised, and and it's and it's troubling. It is troubling the dominant, but of course, I think exactly like you say, Leslie, yeah. we should be doing that on a daily basis in our classrooms, not yeah. not for any other reason than a good reason, and the good mm-hmm. reason is that. We don't know everything. Our no. knowledge may not be perfect. There are different ways of looking at something. There are different ways mm. of seeing or holding or feeling or touching something. Yeah. And and we need those different ways to come in to our social work and our community work and our teaching yeah. and our yeah. in order for us to be able to respond in the right way, in a good way, to the people we we have a duty of care to. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely right. Okay, well, I've absolutely loved that conversation with you, Rick. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been a real pressure, pressure, maybe even a pleasure <laughs> <laughs> to 
talk to you about your paper and and just have a chance to have that conversation with you so we're both really grateful thank you thank you rick and we will say goodbye goodbye thank you bye bye You have been listening to The Portal Podcast, linking research and practice for social work with me, Dr Sarah Lombe. And Dr Leslie Deacon. And this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find a full transcript of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye. Bye.